In episode 20 of the Larry Dowdy Mike Side podcast, we're going to spend some time with pastor, former city councilman, mayor, and author Nelson Harris. Thanks for joining me on the Mike Side podcast today, Nelson. Larry, it is absolutely my pleasure. It's always great to be with you. So let's just dive right in. I mean, you have written a number of books. Uh, obviously, you like history. You like the history of Roanoke. Why has it been so important for you to write about Roanoke's history? Well, I think uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, I, I personally just enjoy it. I think the Roanoke Valley has a rich history, and much of it uh, has been overlooked. Uh, much of it has been lost uh, over time. And so for me to kind of dive into local history and and provide uh, the public through my books uh, a glimpse of what was happening back in the day in the Roanoke Valley, um, I find a, an interesting uh, thing for me to do. And hopefully it's an interesting thing for folks to look at and to read and to discover really uh, a, an unknown history of the Roanoke Valley. Hey, you know, Nelson, as I was reading this latest book, The Roanoke Valley in the 1940s, you know, you cover things that sadly we're seeing being missed in history books today. The the stuff is just being taken out to where, uh, as I was reading it, it was like, wow, that happened here in our neck of the woods. Right. And, and I think for me, that's one of the real treasures of uh, of local history, whether I'm doing it or, or someone else is doing it, is that there that there are these kind of moments where somebody is reading the book and they said, you know, I had no idea that happened in Roanoke. I had no idea that that was a part of the history of uh, of the Roanoke Valley. And to me, that's what that's what makes this effort worthwhile. Of all the books you've written so far, you talk about a lot of change in the 1940s, everything from from house and building numbers to street names, the opening of Gone with the Wind at the American Theater for what well, I love the thought of 75 cent admission <laughs> for a three hour and 45 yes. minute movie. Uh, right. You talk about uh, WDBJ Radio owned by the Roanoke Times and World News. I mean, was nineteen forty were the nineteen forties was that a booming time for Roanoke? Well, it really is. Of course, obviously, half the decade was dominated by World War II, but the war years uh, provided some things in the Roanoke Valley that uh, still define us. For example, uh, the expansion of the airport uh, during World War II. Um, we were the uh, one of the most busiest airports uh, on the East Coast. And our airport got classified as a national defense project. And it went from being the Roanoke Municipal Airport, kind of a, a two-runway operation, to Woodrum Field. A lot of older Roanoke still call it Woodrum Field. And uh, get this, Larry, there was one day in 1943 when you tick off the takeoffs and the landings. We were the busiest airport on the planet. That is amazing. And and I, I, I look at pictures that you have found of Woodrum Field at the time, and it was basically uh, dirt landing strips. Right, right. And so we had this, we had this huge uh, infusion of federal dollars. Uh, we had a 
military uh, flight training program here in the Roanoke Valley. Ground school was at Roanoke College. Flight school was at Woodrum Field. Uh, and so that, you know, it was just amazing how much of that military activity was was going on uh, at Woodrum Field. And of course, so many other things happened in the 1940s. Uh, the, the star on Mill Mountain uh, got lit in uh, 49. Carvin's Cove, which was a huge municipal infrastructure project and is the largest reservoir even to this day, uh, was built and water went over the spillway in the 40s. In fact, German prisoners of war, we had two German POW camps in the Roanoke Valley. They did a lot of the, the work in clearing the basin uh, for the cove. Uh, J-class locomotives, were built and coming out of the Roanoke shops, uh, the N&W Railway Roanoke shops in the 1940s. We had the maiden run of the Powhatan Arrow, which was kind of the, the uh, modern passenger train of the, uh, of the N&W. We had the onset of polio in the 1940s. And in fact, because Roanoke was the epicenter for medical care for Western Virginia of polio patients. The hospital here was called Memorial and Crippled Children's Hospital. And the polio ward in in the Roanoke Hospital was just absolutely overflowing and nurses were coming in from other parts of the country. I mean, it was just amazing the amount of treatment that was going on in regard uh, in regard to that i mean so so much happening uh in in the 1940s was roanoke thinking big in the early 40s i mean you you yeah. some of the things you described there you 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 would expect from a richmond or uh you know a, a charlotte in north carolina and what have you i mean roanoke was it sounds like roanoke was thinking like a big city oh it was it and uh roanoke at the time, in that decade, was the third largest city in Virginia. And we were only uh, uh, smaller than Richmond and the Norfolk area. Uh, so we were the third largest city, of course, the largest city by far in Western Virginia. At that time, we were larger than Charlotte, North Carolina. And so uh, business and civic leaders and others uh, thought big and did, did big things, whether, again, it was the expansion of the airport, whether it was the rail, uh, NW Railway, Star on Mill Mountain. We had an explosion of development uh, in the retail sector in downtown Roanoke following uh, World War II. Larry, I was amazed at how many entertainers came through Roanoke uh, because we were just on their radar screen because of the size of our city in comparison to others. And so uh, some of those entertainers were Louis Armstrong, uh, Count Basie, Leonard Bernstein came through and conducted the Pittsburgh uh, Symphony, Cab Calloway, Tommy Dorsey, Ella Fitzgerald, Dizzy Gillespie, Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, Billy Holiday, Guy Lombardo, all the, the Grand Ole Opry stars used to come to Roanoke typically on Wednesday nights. They would play at the Roanoke Theater, which was actually a movie house downtown, but they had a stage uh, as well. And so you had people like uh, uh, Minnie Pearl, uh, Grandpa J uh, Jones, Ernest Tubb, 
uh, Eddie Arnold, Roy Acuff. I mean, all the big name Grand Ole Opry stars uh, came almost on a almost weekly basis uh, into into Roanoke. Was having the Academy of Music, was that part of an attraction to them? It was. Now, uh, the Grand Ole Opry people were at the Roanoke Theater. The Academy of Music... uh, was kind of the, in, in a way, uh, the civic center of that era, though we, we did have the American Legion Auditorium, which no longer exists, but that was near Hotel Roanoke, and that too was kind of a pretty popular venue. But uh, at the Academy of Music, we had Tallulah Bankhead, we had the original cast of Porgy and Bess come and do a week-long run at the Academy of Music. We had uh, Boris Karloff, Bella Lugusi, Jeanette McDonald, uh, Ethel Barrymore came uh, and did uh, dramatic productions there. The Barter Theater out of Abington uh, would usually do three or four plays in the Academy of Music uh, during the summer months uh, in Roanoke. Amazing stuff. Ultimately, at the end of that decade, the Academy of Music was in such a deteriorating condition that the fire marshal had it declared um, a fire hazard. And it, by, by the late 40s, it had closed as a venue. And, uh, and then, of course, it will be raised uh, in the early 50s. But yes, the Academy of Music was very much um, a popular venue. Nelson Harris, the, the one place it, it seems like Roanoke fell short as I was reading the, uh, the Roanoke Valley of the 1940s. The one place it seemed to fall short was trying to get sports in this area. I know the uh, Roanoke Country Club one time wanted to be a PGA stop. How many times did Roanoke try to get a baseball team in here? Well, I tell you, baseball was hit or miss, and pun intended. (laughs) Um, We had the Salem-Roanoke Friends, which was a minor league uh, professional team in the early 40s. Then minor league baseball uh, kind of... uh, really went away during the war because so many of the men uh, that would be playing on the teams, of course, were were serving in in the military. And uh, then it came back and we had, of course, the Roanoke Red Sox, which was the uh, farm team for the Boston Red Sox. And they just struggled financially. Um, Attendance would kind of, you know, up and down. And ultimately, by 1953, I realize this is beyond the book, but uh, by 1953, they just couldn't make it financially. And in fact, they dissolved mid-season that summer. But as a result of having the Red Sox here, the Boston Red Sox would come and play exhibition games against other Major League Baseball teams, typically the Cincinnati uh, Reds. Yes. I mean, Ronald country club, the pro out there wanted to get that country club on the PGA circuit. We had a couple of PGA players that came and did some exhibition matches there, Byron Nelson and Sam Snead among them. Uh, but again, the war tended to, to interrupt the momentum for these efforts, uh, for, you know, obvious reasons. In 1940, and this is, uh, you know, you were talking about some of the businesses. I had no idea Kroger Grocery and Baking Company was opening stores everywhere. And I think it was, um, it wasn't until maybe 1941, Mac opened its first store. But 
just the fact that Kroger was so prominent in the early 1940s. Right. Yeah. I mean, that surprised me because uh, I, I thought Kroger was more like, you know, um, uh, much later <laughs> as, a, as a grocery chain. But no, they are uh, they're opening stores in the early 1940s. You're exactly right. I mean, Micromac uh, got its uh, got its start in the in the 40s and, of course, had uh, grocery stores uh, throughout the Carolinas and on up into into Pennsylvania. Uh, so, yeah. So you, you kind of you, you look at the book and you and you see some names uh, that are still with us today. And so you kind of think, wow, I had no idea that that, for example, Kroger was that old as a grocery store chain. And then you kind of have a little bit of the opposite. If you're an older Roanoke, you, you, you'll read about a business or a, a, a store chain or whatever, and you go, oh, my goodness, I totally forgot that they were here. And I remember going to, you know, Pew's department store or, you know, whatever. And uh, and and so it's it's a little bit of both. You know, we we talk today about the flood of '85 in Roanoke, but uh, residents, I guess, really had their hands full back in August of 1940 because what we experienced in '85, they pretty much experienced back in uh, August of, of that year during the summer months. What six inches of rain in 24 hours, and the Roanoke River did what it does so well. <laughs> it did, and uh, I mean downtown Roanoke. Uh, flooded, you know, at that time, and the and the river got up, and it really created a significant amount of damage uh, in that particular flood because, of course, this predates any kind of you know flood mitigation programs or anything like you know kind of what we've had in place uh, today, and so um, uh, so it really did uh, a fair amount of damage, and yeah, you think of six inches of rain in a twenty four hour period. Uh, it's it's going to fly. Yes. And uh, so, I mean, it was a significant event. What was the impact to the area? Because uh, it opened in uh, in May of 1941. Lakeside and Lehigh Pools. I mean, that, that was obviously the two fun places to be. Well, Lakeside, the pool at Lakeside had been had been operating for for some time back in the back in the 20s. But uh, the whole idea of of swimming pools uh, was big uh, in the 40s. And of course, these were hangouts for families and then, you know, after dinner for teenagers and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, we had Lehigh Pool, which was on Lee Highway uh, in, in Roanoke, between Roanoke and, and Salem, and then, of course, Lakeside Pool. And then you, you know, you had a few other uh, pools that are operating. You had a, you had the idea for municipal swimming pools uh, happening in the in the 1940s, and of course, uh, we ultimately end up getting a couple of them here in the in the city of Roanoke. Uh, so th- those were just, you know, they were, were kind of magnets uh, for people, and of course, this was pre-air conditioning. So if you were a mom with uh, young kids and it was mid-July and, you know, you had a, uh, you know, in the low in the low 90s and all you had was a window box fan, uh, pool was a pretty good place. To go. <laughs> Indeed. I saw a note you had in the book of the uh, U.S. Census Bureau, and they had reported that the their housing census for Roanoke City showed the average home rental price. Twenty five dollars and sixty one cents a month. 
Yeah, I mean, you you read these prices, uh, you know, you'll see an ad for, you know, what a grocery store was uh, was selling produce or product for. You see what an average home costs, what a new car costs, uh, what an average uh, rent rate w- was. And uh, of course, you also have to keep in mind, you know, salaries were, you know, a few thousand dollars a year. So, uh, you know, it all kind of has an economy of scale to it. But, yeah, you look back at those kind of things and you scratch your head and you go, oh, couldn't, couldn't. I wish I could get a gallon of gas for that price. (laughs) I hear you. But this was also a time, uh, I guess, Roanoke was saying goodbye to the streetcar, right? Right. The the last streetcars uh, ran in 1948. They basically, uh, for, for two reasons, one was, uh, you know, more and more people had personal automobiles, and so they weren't using the streetcars as regularly. And the other was that it was uh, much more convenient and um, uh, efficient to operate a bus system rather than a, an electrified uh, streetcar system. The other thing, too, Larry, about streetcars is they were not safe. I mean, I was surprised at how many fatalities and injuries happened with streetcars because of people getting on and off of them while they were still in motion. And uh, so uh, so anyway, they ultimately were were replaced by uh, by the bus. And two, uh, with with the, the introduction to automobiles to Roanoke, I couldn't believe how many car dealerships or car showrooms were in downtown. Oh, just uh, just a, a, a huge number of them. And, uh, uh, of course, you know, this would have been a time and day, unlike today, uh, where a lot of people, you know, trade in every two or three years. I mean, once you bought an automobile, you kind of stuck with it until it till it would run no more, which was the way I was raised, by the way, Larry. I, I still do that practice today. <laughs> today. Good for you. But, uh, you know, there were a couple of auto dealerships where if you had a if you had a new model car, uh, that was brand new to the market, so it, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't a, a car that that model had been had been well known. A lot of times, what they would do is they'd bring one to the showroom, and then you might go look at it, test drive it, and then they would order it for you from the factory, which then meant that they didn't have to have a huge car lot with all of these cars uh, on a, on them uh, the way we the way we do today. And of course. After World War II, no new cars were made during World War II because of rationing of materials. So after World War II, you had this just boon in uh, car production, car sales, new models. And, of course, the engineers had all redesigned them. So the look of a late 40s car, very different from the look of an early 40s car. And uh, so that, that's just interesting to to absorb that as well. My guest on the Mike Side podcast is Nelson Harris, the uh, author of his latest book, The Roanoke Valley in the 1940s. You know, Nelson, one thing that fascinated me, and I, I don't know if I'm going out on a limb here, were uh, some of the popular names then and how today we may have had those streets named after them. And I wondered that about, say, Senator Harvey Apperson. Uh, of course, we mentioned uh, Clifton Woodrum and Woodrum Field, William Boxley uh, Chapel at First Baptist Church, very popular. Samuel and his wife, Lucy McVitie of Ridgewood Farms. Is that where we got McVitie Road? Correct. Correct. From that family. 
And it was very popular uh, <clears throat> back in, in the 40s, particularly if, if, if someone, I hate to say this, but if someone passed away, uh, that they would be honored in some way and uh, publicly honored. And so you did have streets being named after folks. Uh, uh, again, Woodrum Field. Now, Clifton Woodrum did not uh, uh, pass away until the, until the 50s. But because of his yeoman efforts to secure federal funding for the expansion of the airport, he was the congressman uh, here at the time. Uh, the, the airport was named in, in his honor uh, because, uh, because of that. But his daughter uh, also made history uh, by flying uh, out of Woodrum Field as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Martha Ann Woodrum was really a pioneer aviatrix uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And in fact, the congressman had his own pilot uh, license, uh, and he, he soloed at the Capitol Airport uh, at Congressional Airport up in up in D.C. on a on a regular basis. And we had air shows uh, at uh, uh, air races at Woodrum Field. And but yes, his daughter, the whole uh, Woodrum family was very much involved in uh, the development of aviation here in Roanoke and Martha Ann, very much a pioneer. Uh, as a young woman in aviation. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about uh, the Thanksgiving Day tradition. Uh, Was there a point where Roanokers probably thought, we'll never get this stadium built? (laughs) Well, uh, we we had a stadium, pre-victory stadium, that was just basically wooden bleachers, Larry, in in the same general location of where the stadium ultimately got built. And it was called the Splinter Bowl. Uh, tongue in cheek, obviously, because of the the wooden seats, and so uh, we had this this tradition of VMI and VPI playing each other on Thanksgiving Day, and it was you know it was a huge event. I mean, tens of thousands of people would come, and uh, there were all these kind of ancillary activities that happened as well. Dances at the Hotel Roanoke, typically the governor and the two United States senators would would attend, and you know there'd be events and parties and all this kind of thing. So uh, Victory Stadium got got underway. Uh, Then the war came. Rationing of materials hit and the construction of the stadium just kind of languished uh, because it it really could not qualify as a national defense project, um, though people were trying as best they could to get it to do so. So the stadium ultimately comes online. And then we have, of course, the Thanksgiving Day games uh, uh, resume. And so I think they played one year uh, out of Roanoke because the stadium was under construction. And I believe they played over at Lynchburg that year. Um, But then, you know, then the games resumed and uh, we had a we had a I believe Victory Stadium had a seating capacity of, of 22 or 25,000. I can't quite remember. And that's about how many would uh, would attend that Thanksgiving Day uh, game back in back in the late 40s at the stadium. You know, politics today is uh, still like politics in the mid 40s. Uh, would you tell our podcast listeners a little bit about uh, something the JCs did back in the mid 40s, 46, I think it was Johnny non-voter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is, I mean, the JCs were deeply involved in uh, voter registration drives and then get out the vote. And they just kind of saw this as a part of their civic mission. And so uh, they were disturbed, as any of us would be, by the amount of people that just didn't vote. 
And so as a way to call attention to that, they had a funeral for Johnny Nonvoter. And they got a casket from somewhere, probably probably Okies. They all dressed up in tuxedos and top hats and had this funeral procession through downtown Roanoke for the burial of Johnny Nonvoter. In other words, he wasn't going to be around anymore. Everybody was going to be a be a voter. And uh, so, you know, I mean, it was just it was fun. It was. But yet, it, you know, it had a message to it. Uh, and and the other thing kind of in regards to that, Larry, is how many civic organizations, fraternal and and other kinds of organizations there were and the amount of people that were involved, men and women in these organizations, the impact that they had on the community, the things they supported, the things they created. I mean, it's just, it was unbelievable. You know, I guess 1949, I mean, what a great way to wrap up the 1940s. In 1949, Thanksgiving Eve, Mill Mountain, they lit the star. I mean, that was quite the event, but the star, am I correct? It was just supposed to be seasonal? Correct. Uh, in fact, uh, the downtown merchants uh, were the ones that came up with the development of, of the star and putting a star on Mill Mountain. And the idea was that because of all this post-war boon in retail in downtown Roanoke, that they wanted to do something that would draw people really from all of Western Virginia into Roanoke, into downtown to do their Christmas shopping. And so they thought, you know, the, 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 the thought was, what do we do? And so ultimately they came up with this huge neon star on top of Mill Mountain. And, that, and Larry, the whole thing was supposed to be temporary that they were going to do it this one kind of Christmas season in 1949. And then the star, you know, would serve its purpose, be dismantled, and, you know, they'd move on to, to something else. Well, the star, you know, was lit, and it was uh, broadcast nationally, coast to coast. The event was on uh, on the mutual broadcasting system. And, and, of course, people lined the streets to, you know, wherever they could position themselves in the city to, to watch the star come on. And it was just a big hit, a huge hit. And so uh, it's still, of course, with us, thankfully. And uh, but, yeah, it was originally intended to be just kind of a temporary thing to promote Christmas shopping in downtown Roanoke in the late in the late 40s, 1949. And then uh, then be dismantled and and they move on to something else. Wow. That would be a lot of work for a decoration. You got it. You. <laughs> yes, it would have been. Yes, it would. have. But I mean, this was, you know, you and I were talking a, a little while ago about thinking big, doing big. And so when we think about uh, the big idea and it was of that star and just to be a temporary uh, measure, I mean, this was this was kind of uh, the the bigness, if you will, of the thinking back then on how do we promote Roanoke? How do we boost Roanoke? How do we make our city uh, better. And, uh, and so that, that falls right into that stream of thought. Would you have liked to have lived in the 1940s? Well, you know, yes and no. Uh, yes. In the sense that, uh, obviously there was a lot of activity, uh, you know, you, you, you had entertainment going on and all the big names coming in. Uh, you know, you had, you had so much employment happening and growth happening economically, uh, in Roanoke. Uh, but we also have to remember this was an era of segregation. You know, that is much a part of the book uh, as well. Uh, 
we also had uh, certain areas of the city and of surrounding uh, parts of, of Roanoke County that were impoverished. Um, and that's, you know, woven into into the narrative as well. And then just on creature comfort sides of all of that, you know, you were going to live in a house and typically work in an office building that had no air conditioning. Um, and then if you, if you see pictures of like people sitting at the, at the Thanksgiving day football game, I mean, the man, the men are there, Larry, in coat and tie, coat and tie with dress hats on. Uh, I mean, can you imagine going to an outdoor football game in a, in a suit? (laughs) And so, you know, you see stuff like that. You think, oh, thank goodness. I could just put on jeans and a sweatshirt and a stocking cap. You know, just thank goodness I could wake up in July and, you know, have the house at 70 degrees because of central air. Well, and, and, you know, and and I look at all of this going, yeah, you know, it could have been cool to live back in the 1940s, but I don't know if we would have had the appreciation for it that we have today. And, And, you know, I think that's true, frankly, of every decade we live in. You know, in the moment, we often don't appreciate what we have or take notice of what is happening. Uh, And then we look back uh, to uh, when we were, you know, coming along and uh, and we and then we think, you know, I really didn't appreciate that when I was in high school. I didn't appreciate that when I was, you know, growing up and uh, and. And so, yeah, so when you look back in this case in the 1940s and see some things that were happening uh, that probably weren't as appreciated then as they would be or are today. Well, I tell you, thank you so much for sharing the 1940s. Uh, How can folks find your previous books or your latest, The Roanoke Valley in the 1940s? First of all, all my books are basically available at any online retailer. The Roanoke Valley in the 1940s, and I want to just put a shout out to the Roanoke Public Library Foundation. That was the group, and Sheila Umberger, the library director, that was the group that actually funded the publication of the book. And a wonderful organization. If people want to buy the book from the foundation, uh, all proceeds of that sale go to support the mission of the foundation. They can go to their website, which is rplfstore.org. So Roanoke Public Library Foundation, rplfstore.org. Org, and they can order it from them and uh, and and it'll be it'll be shipped to them again available at online retailers as well fantastic well I don't know what you're working on but uh, Nelson Harris I tell you I I cannot wait to turn the page in your next book well thank you I'm, I'm working on the Roanoke Valley in the 1950s so <laughs> I'll go decade by decade till I wear out or pass away. One of the two. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Hey, thank you again. Larry, thank you. It is always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Mike Side Podcast today. If you like Mike Side, remember to click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you'll know when there's a new episode. If you like the podcast, leave a review. Be sure to tell your family, friends, coworkers about Mike Side. I hope you're going to join me and my guest next time for Larry Dowdy, Mike Side. See you then.